Chapter 17 of Time Telling Through the Ages. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Time Telling Through the Ages by Harry Chase Brearley. Chapter 17 Putting Fifty Million Watches into Service. If this were purely a story of the development of timepieces as mechanisms, there would be little to add to the preceding chapter, save to detail the refinements and improvements by which a cheap, clumsy, but reliable watch gradually discarded its defects while retaining its virtues and the manner in which it developed into a variety of styles and sizes. Essentially, however, this is a story of man and time, of human needs as served by timepieces. The most perfect piece of mechanism in a showcase is like a stove without a fire. It is a mere possibility of service, whose value does not begin until it is set to work. We have arrived, then, at a time when a small percentage of the total population carried accurate timepieces, and was able to profit by the more efficient adjustment of its actions thus secured. We have seen how the promising experiment of the Waterbury Watch Company failed in an attempt to equip the masses with watches, principally through the defects in its system of distribution. And we have noted the appearance of another low-priced watch dedicated to a similar experiment. It is obvious, therefore, that if the Ingersoll firm had already been able to place 50 million separate watches in the service of humanity, something unprecedented must have taken place in the all-important field of distribution. It is significant that Robert H. Ingersoll first called his watch the Universal. Indeed, his chief contribution to the development of the watch is the idea of universality, a word that makes us think more of people than of manufacturers' methods. Having then a watch that was universal in its possibilities as well as in name, and being keenly aware, through his own tastes and experiences, of the needs of the vast mass of the public, his greatest problem became that of universal distribution. In short, it was a selling problem. At first, there could be no definitely formulated plan. Various methods must first be tried out. From these experiences, there gradually arose an adequate system of reaching the millions of people who needed watches. In this, Mr. Ingersoll had effective cooperation. He was the pioneer, the salesman, the promoter, the one who knew men in the widest sense and had the faculty of getting results. His brother, Charles H., was the internal administrator and constant counselor. Later, there was added to the firm a nephew, William H., who was both a student and an analyst. He scrutinized trade tendencies, deduced theories from what he saw, and gave them wide application in actual tests. Together, the members of the firm worked out sales principles of equal opportunity and equal treatment, words that had long constituted a slogan in politics, but were something of a novelty as applied to business. 
in other words they based their plans upon the consumer rather than upon the factory and upon the idea of goods sold through the trade rather than to the trade it took some time however to perfect their system of distribution but when finally developed it was the outgrowth of wide and varied experience the firm made its first sales efforts on the watch through its own mail-order catalogue the results brought some encouragement but proved that in itself this method could never bring the volume of sales necessary for a high-geared uniform quantity of production the next recourse was to the so-called regular trade channels the jobbers and retailers but these dealers displayed little interest they were not promoters of new lines but distributors of those for which a market already existed the jobbers sold what the retailers required the retailers what the public demanded robert ingersoll's original loud ticking watch impressed them more in the light of a curiosity than as a trade possibility in particular it failed to appeal to the jewelers since they felt it to be out of keeping with the beauty and value which characterized their stocks of jewelry and silverware they reasoned also that sales of the new timepiece would interfere with those of their higher priced watches thus failing to grasp the fact since proved to be true that its use would greatly enlarge the sphere of their sales through cultivating a general watch-carrying habit some effort was made with outside trades but these generally considered watches to be out of their line nevertheless in the course of time persistent effort began to bring results occasionally jobbers made purchases and here and there a jeweler or hardware dealer offered the watches for sale when the firm felt justified in spending some money for advertising the public began to learn at first hand of the ingersoll watch and the sales gradually increased many people however expressed doubt as to the quality of a timepiece that could be sold for a dollar and the ingersolls replied with a guarantee that has since become famous then in the natural course of business competition developed from the marketing of inferior goods and the firm found it necessary to place its name on the dial for purposes of identification in spite of all difficulties there grew up in course of time a very considerable public demand whereupon certain dealers undertook privately to raise the price in order to increase their profits this situation was met by emphasizing the price more prominently on the boxes and in the advertising a policy which soon put an end to price raising but led in some instances to even greater difficulty of price cutting the better known became the price the greater became the temptation of dealers of a certain class to advertise its reduction in order to bolster up bargains upon other goods this naturally demoralized the sales of neighboring dealers and caused them to lose interest in the line thus instead of increasing the sales the reduced price proved a serious selling obstacle 
the same difficulty has been encountered by other manufacturers of widely advertised goods and some of them have sought through the courts to compel adherence to their prices the argument being as in the case of the ingersoll watch that price cutting does not serve the interests of the public but tends to interfere with sales since it obstructs the channels of distribution at this writing the question in its legal phase has not yet reached a final decision in the courts but the ingersolls have solved it in a practical way since their trade policies have brought about the voluntary cooperation of the retailers such cooperation however was not to be attained at once it came about through much study and after much experience it involved the assembling of a large amount of data upon commercial economics and a deep inquiry into the fundamental principles of retail distribution it proved necessary to weigh and compare recent and important factors in the retail situation for example because of the fact that so many manufacturers were giving indiscriminate discounts for quantity purchases it had become profitable to establish huge department stores chain stores and mail order houses whose scale of operation made it possible to handle goods in large amounts for a time the ingersolls in common with other manufacturers gave discounts for purchases in quantity later as the business grew and its distribution problems were more scientifically studied they saw more clearly the way in which the principles of equal opportunity and equal treatment could be applied it was in this spirit that the firm began to ask itself whether the large distributors were really more efficient than the small retailers whether they actually earned the extra amount which they were paid for selling each watch and whether it would be a healthful thing for the country if all retail business were transacted through such organizations in short whether restrictions to such a system were really consistent with the theory of commercial democracy approached from this standpoint the answer was found to be in the negative a careful research among stores in all sections of the country showed unmistakably that the cost of selling in a small store was actually less than in the department store the chain store or the mail order house viewing the sale of each watch as an individual transaction it was seen that a small store in some far-off country village gave quite as valuable service as did a large store in a metropolis and therefore should be paid as much consequently the ingersolls introduced a selling plan which under the conditions was as revolutionary in the field of retail distribution as the discovery of galileo had been in that of clock mechanism yet it was merely that of a flat price schedule in other words it was a provision that the dealer buying one dozen watches or even one single watch should pay exactly the same price as the dealer who bought ten thousand quantity discounts were definitely abandoned naturally this plan met with cordial response from the countless small retailers scattered throughout the length and breadth of the country and the close relationship thus established 
led to other logical developments in the way of cooperation, such as that of display devices suited to the needs of these dealers, a simplified accounting system to increase their efficiency, and various measures of a similar nature. In the meantime, a constantly increasing advertising appeal resulted in a rapidly growing demand from the public, and this in turn made possible the assuring a uniform quantity of output, which was in itself the basis necessary for maintaining uniform quality. Thus, practical experience and scientific trade study were formulated into what has become to be recognized as a definite commercial philosophy, namely that of uniform quality, uniform quantity, uniform demand, uniform price to the dealers and uniform price to the consumer, a statement of principles in which, as in the works of a watch, each part must be geared to every other to ensure effective operation. During the time that these business principles were being formulated, the line of watches was also in process of development with the goal of universality in view. Thus it was presently realized that while the dollar watch was essentially a man's timepiece, watches were also needed by women and by children. Accordingly, smaller models were developed to meet these needs. At a later date, the Ingersoll business principles were extended into the field of jeweled watches, when the factories of the Trenton Watch Company and the New England Watch Company were acquired. At the date of the present writing, there are more than a dozen models, each of which is adapted to a different need and use. But the manufacture of no model is undertaken unless there is a market for at least a thousand watches a day. And the latest development, as this is written, is the Time in the Dark Watch. Do you recall a soldier in the forward? waiting in the darkness for the perilous moment to go over the top with his eyes fixed upon the luminous hands and figures of the watch strapped to his wrist? This watch may now be named. It was the radio light. How it came into existence in time to go into the Great War is a story in itself. This story is the latest step in that steady progress of democratization by which accurate time-telling, once a privilege of the few, became the possession of the many. A good many people wish to tell time in the darkness as well as in the light, and if these people could afford to, they bought expensive repeaters. Such watches, however, cost hundreds of dollars, so that while telling time in the light had come within the reach of everyone, telling time in the darkness was still possible for very few. Therefore, the watch could not yet be held to be of equal service to all humanity in every one of the twenty-four hours. This equal service at any moment was finally made possible in a somewhat extraordinary manner. In the year 1896, Monsieur and Madame Curie startled the world with the discovery of radium. They found that certain substances emitted rays that would pass through solid matter as light passes through glass, or as the wind blows through a screen. 
they were finally able to secure tiny quantities of a whitish powder, salt of radium, which gave forth an energy that acted upon everything brought near to it, and this energy they calculated would be protected uninterruptedly for 3,000 years. Up to the present time, radium and radioactivity are subjects of constant study and research, but radium exists in such small quantities and is so enormously costly that comparatively few have had a chance to experiment with it. It seems a little strange to think of using the most precious substance in the world, many times more costly than diamonds, in order to bring time-telling in the dark, within the reach of every person. But this is exactly what has been done. People had long been experimenting with paint made from phosphorus, in order to give off a glow in the darkness which would be sufficient for time-reading. But phosphorus has its limitations. It must first be exposed to light before it is taken into the darkness, and if a watch dial treated with phosphorus is buried in the pocket, it cannot absorb enough light in the daytime to be luminous at night. With radium, however, the problem was solved. It was found that this amazing substance would affect certain other substances, causing them to shine, for years, in the darkness, by means of their own light. Thus it became possible to develop a luminous coating, which the Ingersolls applied to the hands and figures of their radiolight watch, and, presto, the problem of telling time in complete darkness was mastered to the advantage of every buyer the inexpensive watch revealing the hour with equal visibility in inky darkness as in bright daylight had become a reality in passing it is interesting to note that the experiments with the watch face led to many other developments such as luminous compasses gun sights airplane guides and the like then came the world war and the wrist watch which had been often ridiculed as effeminate although it is hard to explain why, since it was first adopted as an obvious convenience in the army and on the hunting field, two of the most masculine spheres of activity it would be possible to imagine, was seen at once to be the most easy means of knowing the time in actual warfare. Millions of watches, consequently, were strapped to the wrists of soldiers and sailors, and the obvious advantages of the luminous dial placed it in enormous demand. Thus it came about that the scene described in the opening pages was typical of countless instances upon various fronts. Although a matter of surprisingly few years, considered chronologically, there is a long distance, measured by the scale of progress, between the moment when a young man, glancing casually at the clock on his bedroom wall, read wonderful possibilities in its face, and the time when the firm he founded was able to take note of such achievements as these. Factory facilities producing an average of 20,000 accurate watches a day. Distribution facilities, including the cooperation of a voluntary chain store system of more than 100,000 independent retailers, all operating upon a common plan and under common prices. A product that has come into the most widespread use, not only throughout the United States, but in the farthest regions of the inhabited earth. 
which has in fact in itself served to turn back the tide by which watches formerly flowed from europe into america so that it now proceeds from our shores toward those of europe and other lands a name which has become as well known as any in commercial and industrial life and better than all the appreciable raising of the efficiency of the human race through universally promoting the watch-carrying habit and putting fifty million timepieces into service it is altogether an aladdin tale of modern business end of chapter seventeen